Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is an interview with Jamie Hodari, who is the CEO of Industrious, one of the leading companies in the co-working space. For careful listeners, I told you all that this week's interview would be with Paul Smithers, the CEO of the Cannabis REIT, Innovative Industrial Properties. We're pushing back that interview due to the timeliness of the conversation with Jamie, given both all of the headlines about the biggest player in the co-working space we work, dominating the real estate news cycle, and also the coincidence that my company, TerraSearch Partners, is moving its headquarters office to co-working space at an industrial location the week of this podcast release. So now, actually, the existential questions caused by WeWork about the co-working business is super live and real, generally in the business world, and very much for me as a business owner. As I say in the interview with Jamie, my company is getting rid of its furniture, so we're essentially going naked with the trust that co-working options are something that we can bank on going forward. It better be real. Here are several headlines from the conversation with Jamie. First, in terms of user experience, co-working options are highly differentiated. It's not all the same, and indeed for my professional services business, not the coder, frat house environment that I think has grabbed the headlines. Jamie talks about industrious at the premium end of the market, and he explains what that means in the conversation. Second headline, not all co-working companies are set up like unicorn businesses. Industrious, and Jamie predicts most of the business going forward, are in partnership with landlords, not tenants of landlords. His business is close to profitability versus built on a required-to-grow model. Third headline is that Jamie's just a deep, thoughtful guy. And as always on Leading Voices, there are so many insights from how he got here to how he set up the business. Last point, and we're careful on Leading Voices not to let it get there, this is not meant as a commercial for a particular company, although it may sometimes sound that way. In this example, I see the conversation as a deep dive view into the co-working business beyond the WeWork headlines to understand the business model for a leading company that we think is in a business built to last and to continue to disrupt and change the office building environment. So folks, I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Jamie Hodari. A few words before we get to the episode. If you're enjoying Leading Voices, please rate us on iTunes. It will only take you a few minutes. Second, pass your favorite episodes on to a friend. That's also easy from your web browser or your iPhone or however you're listening in. Share, share, share. And finally, visit the podcast website, leadingvoicespodcast.com, as well as our firm, now headquartered in co-working space, at terrasearchpartners.com. And if you have comments or feedback, please email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the episode. So, Jamie Hodari, welcome to Leading Voices. You are the CEO of Industrious, one of the largest players in the co-working space, and I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to have you because this is a very timely conversation. A couple of headlines. One, and it's always going to be the elephant in the room in your space, but the biggest competitor, the largest player in your space, and the brand name most associated with co-working, WeWork, has been constantly in the news for months and is now in crisis with the ouster of its CEO, the failure of its IPO, and we assume some restructuring to come. Question is, is this all about WeWork, or is there an underlying existential issue about the concept of co-working? So question one, thought one. Thought two, is co-working a temporary trend, or is it a secular change in the business? And three, as we're taping this interview, I'm in boxes because we're moving into one of your spaces in two weeks. So I'm about to jump into the deep end, so I really care about the answer here. So the quick story on Industrious, we're the largest premium workplace provider in the country. We have about 100 locations across 45 cities. And if your listeners kind of know of us, or for people who kind of know Industrious, people associate us with kind of three things. The first is we have the best unit economics and the highest customer satisfaction in our industry. The second, as a result of that, and this is something I hope we can touch on in the interview, is that we're the first company in our sector that has moved from arm's length leases with landlords to management agreements or partnership agreements with landlords, which really fundamentally alters 
the nature of the business itself. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we are, I think, as of next month or the month after going a profitable business, which is also relatively distinct from what you see in our industry. Mm-hmm. What I would say, and this, this question of what does what's happening with WeWork mean to the industry more broadly, some of what I just said directly relates to that. What I would say is it is sad to watch. I think it's obviously a good thing for industrious, but I hesitate to sort of jump up and down the plea if you, know, you have 5,000, 7,000 people who might be losing their jobs. Right. But I think if you look at why it's happened, it's very much tied to a series of strategic decisions we work made. In particular, the fact that in the S1, the unit economics are very opaque, but the suspicion is the company is not making much money at the unit level. The second is that they have $50 billion of lease obligations. And the third is obviously that they lose a lot of money at the parent level. And there are operators in the space, probably industrious most notably, who make 30, 35% margins at the unit level. We don't sign leases. And as I just mentioned, because our revenue has grown at 100, 120% a year, and we've been disciplined about keeping overhead growth to 50, 60% a year, we've been able to march to profitability quite quickly. So I don't think there's anyone looking at the industry and saying, do WeWork stumbles represent a fundamental or existential threat to the future of the industry itself? And I guess I would finish by saying one way to think of that is there are industries where you look at them and you say, the reason this industry exists in its current form is because Silicon Valley, and a lot of times it's SoftBank, has come and funded something that's non-economic. Mm-hmm. So Uber, if Uber had to charge what Uber would need to charge in order to be profitable, people would still take Uber rides, but they might use it a lot less because it would be much more expensive. In this circumstance, you look at a company like Industrious, and I think we provide our product at a price to market, whatever you would call the sort of market clearing price for the premium product in our sector, and we have margins north of 30% across our portfolio. So I don't think what you're looking at is an industry that could only exist via sort of money losing Silicon Valley subsidies. Thank God, or this would be a very different conversation. And it would as a future tenant as well. So what you're saying is I think the Uber parallel is there's like a 20% subsidy going into my cab ride or my Uber ride because of the losses they're taking so they could buy market share ultimately a challenged strategy. So the money I'm about to be paying you is real money and not at a loss leader coming in so you could build the business. Exactly. Exactly. That works. And when you say the word premium, so you're the largest premium provider, one of the things that I found in shopping for our co-working space, looking at different providers, I found the thought going in was it's an undifferentiated space but I found a ton of differentiations between providers and between specific locations. So maybe talk about what premium means to you and what that means to a tenant like me. I think of this in a lot of ways as an outsourcing industry. You're going to large businesses, small businesses, you know, entrepreneurs and saying that they should outsource the delivery of their employees' workplace experience to us. And when you think about various outsourcing industries, different components of a business that companies at some point recognize is not their core function and that some expert out in the world could do it better than they could. Mm -hmm. What it feels like to walk into work every day as a Johnson & Johnson employee or as an employee of a four-person PR firm or whatever it is, what you experience for those 10 hours a day, that's about as close to the bone as any outsourcing industry gets, you know, maybe outsource manufacturing, the fact that Apple doesn't actually manufacture the iPhone, that's pretty close to home for them. Mm-hmm. But I think what your employees experience, what your clients experience when they come to a meeting, that's a very subtle, very complex product. And of course, just as there's an enormous diversity of different types of workplace experiences, whether you work at Exxon or Twitter or for a healthcare nonprofit in the same way, there should be just as wide a diversity of outsourced or third-party workplace settings. Mm -hmm. The difference I would say is, to get to this premium question, Mm -hmm. the really good providers are very outcome-focused. And I would say, it's hard for me to speak to our competitors, but for industrious, so much of what we do is say, we are on the hook to deliver a better, more productive, happier, more engaging day at work. 
And lots of companies do a very thorough job of measuring their employee engagement scores, their employee attrition scores. And oftentimes for smaller businesses, it's a little more behind the scenes. It's more anecdotal or you feel it in your bones, but you're not necessarily measuring it quantitatively. And a provider like Industrious says, it's not just that we're going to give you more flexible space. It's not just that we're going to do it more conveniently. You are going to be happier, more productive, more engaged at work, and you can hold our feet to the fire. And if that's not true, then we didn't live up to our job and you should vote with your feet and go move to a competitor's space. That to me, and the fact that we have the highest customer satisfaction in our industry, the lowest churn, the highest sort of customer engagement scores as a reflection of the fact that that's our obsession is the core of what leads us to be a more premium, less commodity provider than a lot of what you see out there. It's interesting how you answered the question because I had my experience could not be knowing the answer to that going into a space. So I walk around four or five different providers. The differentiators that I saw were things that I could touch and feel at the moment. And so I'll guess at three of them and tell me if I'm right or if these are things you track this and it matters. One, I was looking at average age. I'm 63 as of two days ago, so I'm going to be the old guy in the space. But I think average age differentiates between these different workplaces. Two, I think square footage per person and maybe hallway width. And three is gender. So talk about those three as things that make that real. So the average age of an industrious customer is almost 40, which is a bit distinct from the rest of the industry. And there's a very wide range. So it's not that everybody is 35 to 45, but we have a lot of 75-year-old customers, and we do have a lot of 25-year-old customers, but the average is, I think, 39. Mm -hmm. We tend to be more generous on a square footage basis, but I can kind of come back to why that's the case. And then the final piece on the gender front is, yeah, I think one of the big mistakes a lot of early workplace providers made, and maybe WeWork would be the pinnacle of this, was to build a niche product that was really built for a certain population. And then all of a sudden, the sector caught fire. And so they tried to take that niche product and make it fit for everyone. But, you know, I think a lot of early co-working spaces were built for very male-heavy, young, 20-something engineering teams who wanted neon and they wanted kegs of beer and they wanted a certain type of office atmosphere. And that did prove to be, I think, relatively unwelcoming to people who didn't fit that mold. I will say I think WeWork got better over time at this, but I think Industrious is certainly done a much better job in the rest of the market and making our workplaces very inviting, very welcoming places for men, for women, for 75-year-olds, 25-year-olds, etc. What I will say is one of the complications of this industry, and I think you got to the heart of it, is that this is a subscription business. The way you win in this industry is through low churn rate, high renewal rates. You want to delight your customers and keep them around for three, four five, seven, 10 years. And the things that make someone want to stay are different than the things that you might notice on an initial tour. And we've never been able to resolve that tension effectively. But a really good example for your listener and you're trying to picture that is there are certain ways to design a space that are really sexy and exciting when you first take a tour. Really bright colors, lots of diversity of materials, very loud and buzzy, And that will up your tour conversion rate when people come and tour different spaces. But by month seven, people are sick of it. And they want somewhere that feels cozier, homier, warmer, more inviting. And so what's hard is to toe the line between a business that you as a customer, when you toured, could immediately identify as a place you would want to work, but really focus more of our efforts on a year in, are you going to come back to me and say, I love it more than the first day I worked there? That's very rare in our industry, and I would argue, particularly, I would say, unique, I think, to industrious. I like it more after year two than I did on day one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that isn't purely around square footage. It's around more subtle design elements that we're in the long term that I probably couldn't articulate. Design and service. How much is service? How much is design? Yeah, so you're right. It's a function of a whole host of design elements, service elements, programming elements. I think... Anyone who's worked in a workplace can picture a little bit what I'm about to talk about. It might be a little unique in a shared setting, but in general, the best way to work is something called activity-based working, where instead of sitting at a desk 10 hours a day, you're working in different space types that are optimized for the type of work you want to do 
in a given moment. So if you're sitting or responding to emails, it's perfectly fine to be at your desk. But if you have to write a two-hour strategy document, you can't have one person sitting to your left and one person sitting one foot to your right. So you need focus rooms or sensory deprivation sort of writing rooms. Mm-hmm. For casual meetings, you need different types of spaces and formal meetings. And what we do at Industrious is we lay out, we say, for this person who sits at this desk, how far are they willing to travel for different space types and how many times a day will they use it? And you can map out that person's journey throughout their day. And if you do it right, just think about how much healthier and better of a day that is. If you moved around throughout your day to different types of space and you left the space and came back, et cetera, than just sitting for, for 10 hours. But it's really hard to do. Just thinking of the decision that we made, I was about, I signed a five-year lease five years ago and I bought $100,000 worth of furniture for a small company. And then I was locked into my furniture. I was locked into the square footage. I had one person retire, one person move to work from home. All of a sudden, I was half full in my space. So when it came time for renewal, I didn't want to do that again. I wanted optionality and freedom. Although, now we're going to be naked (laughs) because our furniture is gone. So the $100,000 investment is gone, which I won't make again. So it has to be you or one of your competitors in the long run. It's forever there for me, I hope. I think what people find surprising is what you just described is very much true for five-person businesses or 20-person businesses. And at this point, it's also true for 300-person teams. If you ask Prudential, you know, they're having to do their headcount planning in Denver, for example. Are you going to have 500 people in Denver in 2026? or 570 people, or 680, or are you going to shrink and have 400 people? Even for the most old-line conservative businesses to anticipate what seven years from now is going to look like, nine years from now is going to look like, has become extremely difficult. And as a result, I think, I like to think the main reason people pick providers like Industrious is because they get a better, happier, you know, more productive day at work. Mm -hmm. But I think that flexibility is an important part of it. The 10-year lease, is a really bad fit for the vast majority of American businesses at this point. Mm-hmm. You wanted to do a minute on design versus function, I think. what? Well, all I was going to say is I feel like what I just described to you sounded mundane. Mm-hmm. You know, how far are you willing to travel for a focus room versus a phone room? But I think it goes to the heart of what makes for a great day work. And what I would say is I think the average casual listener, reader, et cetera, mm-hmm has started to realize that. If you think about what you saw on Instagram or Twitter five years ago, seven years ago, there were so many of these sexiest offices in America, business insider tour of the new Squarespace headquarters. And over time, the frequency and quantity of those articles Mm -hmm. really declined. Mm -hmm. You, You don't see a lot of those anymore because I think what people realized was there were all these offices that looked great on day one and they had the water slide that made for a cool video and none of it really mattered. What really mattered, just like with your home, was is this a place you feel great going to every day? Is this a place you feel at home? Is this a place you feel welcomed? Is this a place that's optimized for productivity? Mm-hmm. And that was one of the big bets industrious made years ago was to focus on functional design, not on trying to sort of wow people with the veneer or the aesthetic design. I think industrials are beautiful, but the whole world has come in our direction now. Functional design is the name of the game and office design for the next decade, the way aesthetic design was for the last decade. Fair deal. And it's interesting just as we walk through, again, with your competitors as well, but there were places that made my team, this is more about my team than about myself, feel comfortable and enlivened in the day And then when we looked at another closed-door space, both at Regis, which had closed-door spaces, or in my current building in an appropriate-sized space, they didn't want to be behind that closed wood door. We need feeling other people around in a space that feels pretty good instead of, you know, like a chicken wire den or something. What's interesting is people talk a lot about community in our business. You know, and we work, the we is right there in the name And it plays out a little differently than people expect. What we find is, let's say 30% of customers actively want to meet new people, interact with others, use their workplace as an opportunity to build a community outside of just their colleagues. Mm -hmm. 
but 100% of customers appreciate just being around other people, yep. the visual feeling of being around other people, the energy, the sense that it cuts some of the isolation people sometimes feel at work. And for a lot of people, that's all they need. They don't actually need to make seven new friends and meet someone from the graphic design firm across the hall. But if you can construct offices in a way that allows a lot of natural light and feels open and warm with while still having your own private space, right. people really do appreciate that. So I'm just going to repeat that. About 30% of people want to meet new people and they're there for that community and social. And the other 70% that's going to be me and my team. So we don't have to feel bad not wanting to go have a keg of beer every afternoon. You will appreciate the presence of others. <laughs> Just like if you went to a mall and you were the only customer in a mall, it would be terrifying. Right. You'll appreciate the presence of others without having to be best buds with them. Thank God. Okay, I love it. We'll also need a place to do my podcast, but let's get into that one later. So talk about landlord partnerships, because that's one of the headlines of this conversation. So what does that mean, and how did you move in that direction, and why and how does that structured versus long on leases? So the broad concept is, and I think this WeWork moment has really shed a light on the merits of it, the broad concept is twofold. One is, you as a landlord are sharing in the downside risk if an operator underperforms, even if you have an arm's length lease with them. Mm -hmm. You know, they owe you $5 million a year. Ostensibly, you could take that to the bank, but if they're making $4.2 million a year and they owe you five, they might put money into a money losing unit for five months, six months, but they're not going to do it in perpetuity. And as a result, landlords are exposed to the downside of an operator's performance. Mm -hmm. Why would they not be exposed to the upside? You know, in a partnership agreement with a landlord, our landlords make about 30% above market rent. That's the way it should be. If they're going to feel the pain, if we have a unit that's underperforming and is not making money, they should get to benefit when the unit is doing well and is bringing in above market income. I think the second point, and this is actually more important, is our industry has become so vital to the life of a building. It's much better to be on the same side of the table. You know, the problem with being on off side of the table is oftentimes we're only 10% of the building. You know, mm -hmm. at 345 California, the location in, in San Francisco, my guess is we're not even 8% of the total square footage of the building. And what we do, the staffing there, the events we throw, those have the opportunity to be very meaningful to the other 90% of the building. So what landlords would really love is for us to throw events for the long-term tenants of the building to create shared amenity spaces that the other 90% of the building can access. And you can only really do that as partners. You know, if you sign an arm's length lease, you have no incentive to help out the landlord in the performance of the other 90% of the building. In fact, every incentive is to shut the door behind you and only focus on what happens within the four walls of your 40,000 square foot unit. Mm -hmm. And those two things in combination, the opportunity to make 30% more money on the 10% of the building we control and then the opportunity to partner together to deliver a better tenant experience to the other 90% of the building. When you add those two together, we fought for a long time to get landlords interested in this. But once they started to take, I think those two things in combination have proven to be so persuasive that now we have 20-something landlord partners. We're going to open 55 to 65 managed or partnered units next year. We don't sign any more leases. And the business is growing just as fast, if not faster now, than in the lease-based version of our business. Mm -hmm. And the last point I will make is that is where the whole industry is headed. Mm -hmm. That seems unique to industrious. We just had the most consistent performance and most consistent unit economics, so we were able to get there first. But my prediction, and I feel very confident about this, is by three, four, five years from now, the vast majority of operators will sign partnership agreements with landlords not leases. Just like in the hotel industry, mm -hmm. people used to sign leases for hotels. It was swingy. It was risky. It wasn't a good business. It was bad for the asset owners that all of a sudden found themselves with an empty hotel one day. And the whole hotel industry moved over to management agreements about 20 years ago. Right. That's exactly what's going to happen in this industry. Makes total sense. And a couple questions to drill down, and maybe these are wonky questions, but one is I also think it solves the long, short mismatch 
issue, which I yeah. thought was the fundamental issue here all along, which is you're yeah. renting long, selling short, and that's really cool until it's not cool. It's actually funny you say that. That is the moment when I really committed to pushing our company towards managing contracts was I was at a conference mm-hmm. and someone asked, you know, it was a panel of us. It was WeWork, Industrious, I think one or two other providers. And someone in the audience asked about the long, short mismatch. And we all, it was like a wind-up doll. We all went right into this answer about, well, it's actually not as bad as it seems. And in a recession, we have, you know. Right. And I just, I had this moment where I thought, like, uh. they're right. Mm-hmm. They're right. That is for sure the biggest knock on our industry. It's for sure the number one most valid criticism of our industry. And I got tired of having to sort of, like, bend myself into knots in order to <laughs> find a way to answer that question. And so I just said, you're right. It's the worst part of our industry and we're going to find a way to fix it. Um, and I think partnership agreements are the way to fix it. It feels that way hundred percent. And then the second question is some of the landlords want to do it on their own. And so where is it natural for a landlord to do it on their own? Where is it unnatural? And what it does seem to me, I'll half answer the question is a traditional landlord, it's almost like a triple net leasing. They're not that involved. But if it's month to month or year to year lease, then you have to provide a different level of service to keep it going and the furniture and all the rest of it. But how do you compete with the landlords wanting to say, hey, I'll just handle it? I think there are landlords who have been intrigued by this. I think a lot of landlords actually built businesses like this themselves and came to Industrious over the last few years to take it over and manage it for them. Mm-hmm. So I think the track record has not been strong. And the reason is, I think at the commodity end of this business, at the lower end of this business, mm-hmm. where you say, really, the proposition is not a great day at work. It's not productivity. It's not workplace engagement. It's really just flexibility. A landlord can provide flexibility. But when you get into the sector of the market, and I think in the long run, this will be the vast majority of the industry where you really expect to deliver a great employee outcome. I don't think anyone thinks that a public REIT that specializes in buying and selling assets can walk in the door of Johnson & Johnson or Airbnb and say, hey, we're the experts at delivering a great day at work for your employees, and you should trust us to deliver something as close to your heart as your employee's day-to-day workplace experience. It's just not credible. And so I think in the long run, what you'll see is kind of generic spec suite mm-hmm. will be managed by landlords. But other than that, it's going to be expert operators. Our fees are not that high. I've never had a landlord say, for example, you might say to a landlord, this unit will make $6 million. Our fee is 600000 So you're going to make $5.4 million net of our fees. I've never had a landlord say, I think I could clear $5.4 million on my own without you. Every landlord says, I'll make more money paying you a fee and having you do it than trying to do it myself. But is there a fundamental difference between their having you do that in the short-term lease environment versus the service they provide to the long-term tenants, which is or is not a – it's less of a hospitality service, but they're still providing that. So you're not disintermediating that part of their business or – are you? Yeah, I think the provision of space, the delivering heavy mechanicals and facilities management, you know, the things you have to provide as a building owner to long-term tenants, I think that most landlords are well-suited and well-set up to deliver. Delivering the day-to-day workplace experience of a Google employee or a Merck employee is a very different proposition. And in fact, what I would argue is a lot of landlords have a lot of experience with outsourcing different components of that. You know, they hire Cushman and Wakefield to do their facilities management. They hire outside firms to do cleaning. They hire outside firms to do the security at the front desk. So most service delivery components of an office building are actually already handled by a third-party provider. What we do is say, let's take all of it, the space, the design, the construction, the security, the food and beverage, the events, the, the hospitality and collapse all 13 or 14 of those things into a single product that customers can consume. And that, in particular, would be hard for a landlord to sell for. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I was at the headquarters of one of the major national landlords a couple months ago, and they have their own version of this. 
And one of the comments their HR person made to me is that most of our hires over the last couple of years have been hospitality hires. Changing the mindset of our company, we need the hospitality mindset throughout the business. I think the good landlords have definitely gotten hip to that. Yeah, got to do it. So let's totally change the subject. On Leading Voices, we talk about people's career journeys, how they got to where they got. And we've been talking about what you do, but let's talk about you for a few minutes and understand how you came to co-found this company. So briefly, but help us understand where did you grow up and talk a little bit about family life and what there might have been there that led you to this. So I grew up in suburban Michigan. It was the kind of place with no sidewalk, you know, very suburban. We didn't really know our neighbors other than the house directly next to ours had a kid who was basically my age and I could throw a tennis ball out of my window and hit his window. Mm-hmm. And so they were the only neighbor my whole life who I really knew. And that guy actually ended up, his name's Justin, ended up being my co-founder at Industria. So I can describe the career journey, but one of the quirkiest parts of all of the business is that my best friend since I was two or three years old is actually my co-founder here. And I hear nightmare stories about that all the time. Mm-hmm. That has not been our experience. You know, we're six years in, and I think it's one of the best parts of having grown this business is having the chance to do it with someone who is about as close to family as you can be without being a blood relative. From there, mm-hmm. I started my career as a journalist for the Times of India in Delhi. My family's not Indian, but I learned Hindi in college, and I really wanted a chance to use it, and I wanted to be a writer, so I lived there and did that. And then I was a corporate lawyer. Uh-huh. I was an investor at a hedge fund. And at the sort of job I was working at when we launched Industria, I had left the hedge fund to take over the kind of national private college scholarship programs for Orphans of Rwandan Genocide in Rwanda. And then we had used that as a platform to launch essentially a 21st century, half online, half offline university in Kigali, Rwanda. Now there's multiple campuses. And I loved that job, but I missed the for-profit world a lot. Uh And I had a meeting with our largest funder about six years ago now, which was Ikea, the furniture company. You know, the meeting, our U.S. offices were actually in a shared workplace. And at the last minute, I felt embarrassed to have the meeting there. The conference room table was sticky. It just wasn't professional enough. And this guy was the president of the Ikea Foundation. And so I moved it to a coffee shop. And that night I said, this is ludicrous. You know, I'm paying for a shared office and I can't even hold the most important meeting of my life there. If I feel that way, there must be 50,000 companies that want to take advantage of some of the sharing economy benefits of flexible and shared workplace but would love a more professional, elegant product in which to do it. Uh And so Justin and I said, screw it. You know, this is one of these classic, I'd be customer number one of this product if it existed. So we launched it as a side project. Well, so put a pin on that because I want to come back to you and Justin and that moment in time, but I don't want to gloss over a couple of points that you ran by. So one is you didn't mention you're particularly well-educated. I think you've gone to Columbia, Yale, and Harvard. That's missing Penn and Brown, I think, and Cornell. But <laughs> so, but just talk about your educational background and what you learned or how that raised your game. I hope my mom or dad end up listening to this because they'll, be they'll be happy. I think I always really loved school. I really loved education. I really loved reading. I still read about a book a week. And I do think as a young CEO before Industrious in my late 20s, it was really helpful to have that kind of mindset that I think the problem when you found a company early in your career is you don't have all the mistakes you've made to learn from. And so you either get very good at learning from others' mistakes and learning from who came before you, or you're going to have to reason everything from first principles and you're going to probably run aground before you have a chance to accomplish very much. And so I do think for me, the through line is having always loved school, having always loved getting to observe the good, the bad, the foibles, the the accomplishments of others and really dig inside why that was the case Mm -hmm. has been very helpful now at this point in my career. I loved law school. I'm very happy I'm not a lawyer. I was a lawyer for one year and that was probably the one thing where I, I lost it was the greatest three years of my life. And 
I found being a corporate lawyer to be a bit uninspiring, let's say. You're not the first person to have said that <laughs> and not the first person on this podcast to have said that. It, but, but if you combine kind of, I think, undergrad at Columbia, Yale Law School, and then Master of Public Policy at Yale, do I have this right? At Harvard. Okay, at Harvard. So how do you, when they morph together, kind of the Master of Public Policy and the law degree, then that gets you to the nonprofit world that you did for a couple of years? Or just talk about that soup in India, right? <laughs> because you're there for a couple of years. So that had to be as influential yeah. as the rest of it. So the reality is my last year of graduate school, maybe even a little longer than the last mm-hmm. year, I felt like I had learned a lot. I felt like I had kind of figured out mm-hmm. how to do well on a law school exam without necessarily having to spend all day every day in the book. And I wanted mm-hmm. to find a way to use my time more thoughtfully. And so I actually moved to Ohio for long periods of time in my final year to work for the Obama campaign there. This was in 2008. And mm-hmm. thank you. <laughs> And I learned a lot and I loved it. And it was, you know, the nice thing about political campaigns is an opportunity to lead teams and lead people in a very intense setting, but obviously pretty early in your career and without a lot of structural support. I think I really loved it, but probably came away seeing a lot of my colleagues on that campaign angle to go to Washington and get jobs there and and go into politics. And I realized that public policy and, you know, that was it wasn't really for me. It's, it's a little too wide angle. It's a little too abstracted from the people you're serving. Like one thing I love about industrious, one thing I love about Kepler, the organization I ran before, was it wasn't an education policy organization. It was a university. I got to see students every day who walked in and their college experience was something that I think was really special in that context because of the work we were doing. At industrious, I get to see We've delivered 10 million days at work for real people on the ground. I think I'm attracted to things Mm -hmm. that are a little more concrete and a little closer to the end customer than a lot of what public policy involves, at least for now. Fair deal. So then talk through how you wound up in either you're in Rwanda or you're in the States. So just talk about that a little bit, and then we'll come back to that moment in time when the IKEA guys came and you realized the conference table really was not one you wanted to sit around. I actually loved working at a hedge fund. That, but the job at the time when I took the Rwanda job was I was working at a hedge fund, and I found it, it was really fascinating. It just felt a little substanceless to me. Like It felt a little bit like it was the most interesting thing in the world because you're basically trying to make bets about the world and get really smart on industries very quickly and have to really take a point of view and have a thesis around where the wedding industry is going or where the bookmaking industry is going. But I had a moment that made me aware of just how disconnected that exercise was Mm -hmm. from the real world and from Mm -hmm. real people on the ground, which was there was that tsunami in Japan I guess a decade ago mm-hmm. now. And, right. you know, it was terrible. There's lots of people died. This nuclear reactor was on the brink of melting down. And we were trying to figure out what was our play in the Japanese stock market if the Fukushima reactor broke down, which that's every investor that you would be a negligent investor if you weren't going through that exact thought process. So it doesn't say anything about that particular fund because that is, that's any fund. But it, there was a moment where it's like, that conversion of real world events and real world impact to what does it mean for stock prices or stuff like that was just not what I wanted to be spending my days doing. And so I just sent an email to a bunch of friends and said, I think maybe it's time for me to move into something a little more service oriented. I feel like I have a lot to give back for. Mm -hmm. And someone who knew someone, this organization is looking for a new executive director. And actually something that I think about a lot is I emailed this woman, Jacqueline Novogratz, who founded Acumen Fund and wrote a really famous book about service in the nonprofit world called The Blue Sweater or The Bluest Sweater. And I didn't think she'd ever respond. And she responded. And she had this long email exchange with me about this is what it would mean and this is why you do it. And I was a complete stranger. And I can't believe she took the time to do it. And I have a lot of trouble now at this point in my career responding to lots of sort of random people who reach out. But I think she was in part responsible for me 
leaving. And so I want to be the type of person now who responds to people who say, hey, I'm working through this career crisis or something like that, because I bet she would never remember that she had that exchange with that random stranger, but it certainly has altered the course of my life. Mm -hmm. It's interesting what you said before. One, about when you were at the hedge fund, it in some ways brought out the best in you, but it wasn't satisfying. I think you said, kind of paraphrasing your words, because it probably takes every bit of your intellectual capacity to be really brilliant at that. But then at the end of the day, you're making bets and making trades, not doing something. I think that's a really good point. And I think about this a lot when I look at friends from law school or people who are sort of taking stock of their career 15 years in and saying, do I like where I am? Do I not? Is There is something great about excellence. There's no denying that. Really walking to work every day and saying, I'm excellent at what I do is a special feeling. But for a lot of people, it's not enough. And you focus for so long on what is the thing in the world I can be best at, where I can get the biggest difference between me and the next person who would take my seat if I left. But that becomes the entirety of the sort of consideration when in reality, I think it's better suited to be a part of the more holistic, broader sense of considerations that one should take into account in deciding how they want to be spending their time. So you're at this conference table, you're going to meet someone, you decided to do it in Starbucks instead, and you talked to Justin. So was he there? And then when did you connect on this? And what was the brainstorm? And what was co-working then in the world? Did it exist? And in what form? So... Justin was running the U.S. arm of a Chinese real estate company. So the U.S. team was relatively small. So he was in a shared workplace as well. And it had a lot of similar experiences. So that was pretty easy. We hung out all the time. So we were probably talking. We were probably complaining about our work environment every other week and eventually coalesced around this idea of taking action and trying to do something about it ourselves. At the time, the world was very much bifurcated into executive suites where you had yeah. closed door, no communal area, and I think probably a pretty bad work experience because you didn't have a lot of access to natural light and you can't sit in a three-person room for 10 hours a day. You go crazy. So without those mm-hmm. communal environments, you don't have anywhere to go. There's no release valve. People would go crazy in those work environments. You'd be in a 100 40 square foot room with a sort of buzzing fluorescent light from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. That was probably 80% of the market, 85%. And then 15% of the market was V1 of co-working, very open floor plan, kind of rent a seat or rent a desk in an open floor plan area. And that was communal and it had natural light and it was a little more humane, but it was very unproductive. Unless you're a graphic designer that can put on some noise-canceling headphones and just get to work, it wasn't really an appropriate work environment for the vast majority of people. And the Goldilocks solution, the sort of privacy of private offices, but with the communal spaces and more diversity of spaces you got in co-working, there were, I think, three or four WeWork locations at the time. This was early 2012, I think, when we first started conceiving of it. It was just the beginnings of a group of companies saying, can you come up with something that draws the best of both? And definitely Mm -hmm. no one had done what we wanted to do, which was, can you take the best of both and make it a very professional high-end experience? So talk about how you and Justin came up with this together, how you brainstormed it, whiteboarded, took the leap, and then what that first period of time was, and then how it started to lift off. I think I'm a little more cerebral, a little more of like a systems type thinker, a little more, I don't know, like I think I actually would do a very bad job of launching a business on my own because I think I might not be scrappy enough, for lack of a better word. And Justin is quicker to act. He's a little more willing to shoot from the hip and he's just able to get stuff done at a really high velocity. So I think part of being really close friends was we were able to acknowledge that distinction in our characters and in our strengths. And we really divided and conquered in that way. So the very early days, we did some whiteboarding. We kind of came to roughly what the plan was. And we kind of trusted each other to take care of our parts of it. It's not like I had a lot of time to sit and do a lot of brainstorming sessions. And so basically, I wrote the business plan. I came up with the fundraising plan. I set up what the P&L 
sort of pro forma economics of the business were meant to be, laid out what the core assumptions were that we could start testing. If this goes wrong, why will it go wrong? And Justin actually got to work making that a reality. And a great example that I haven't shared that much, even internally in Industrious, was we decided that we wanted a lot of the office partitions to be glass. Not because glass is so attractive, but just because unless you're on a window, it's a nightmare for internal offices if the offices are all drywall. There's no natural light. So having glass partitions is kind of the only way to let natural light make it into the interior of the space. And that was one where we didn't do a good job of dividing and conquering, but we both thought we were on the hook for figuring out what to do. So I came and I said, I've created a matrix based on some research I've done of the six major qualities of glass, light refraction, sound attenuation, structural integrity, blah, blah, you know, and here's pricing based on different thicknesses. And he was like, I called two companies. I found a company in Illinois. They make great glass. (laughs) I ordered 400 linear feet or whatever. And it was like the most extreme example of the distinctions in our approach. And we're so much better off for him having done that because I think he's a satisficer and I'm a maximizer. When you're getting a startup off the ground, you do not need to maximize the whatever it is, light transference properties of the glass. You just need glass and you need it tomorrow. And that's Uh kind of how we got things moving. And when did you cut the cord? When did you leave the educational nonprofit or for how long were you moonlighting at this thing? And when did it start full time? Go for it. I ran both for, I want to say, six or seven months. And I didn't get to sleep a lot. It was a lot of work. And actually, Justin and I were kind of co-CEOs at that time. So I guess I would say we were co-running Industrious, and then I was running Kepler. But it became completely unsustainable once it became clear. I think by month three of Industrious, we were like, wow, we're really on to something. You know, we had 60 offices, and we got 600 applications before we opened our doors. And it sort of really outperformed the pro formas that we had put out in our rosiest projections. And we knew at that point, this deserves to be a national business. And so, you know, we brought in a replacement CEO at Kepler and moved to Industrious full time. Uh-huh. And that's 2013, give or 2012, yeah, 2013. That's 2013. Yeah. And when does it go beyond you're probably aware you're creating a prototype? When does it go beyond prototype to this could be a national or maybe global thing? Like, how do you get there? I think what's hard about building a business and having a location is you know you're succeeding, but you don't have any A-B testing to identify what is it about this that's successful. Is the service model driving a lot of the success? Is the physical design? Is it the nature of the way we talk about and and position the brand and the product? And so I would say the first wave of expansion, we were very thoughtful. And this is something a lot of people criticized us about early on. And still to this day, I get questions about from investors. The first wave of expansion We were explicitly experimental about it in an almost, I think, bizarre way. What you could do is say, I created this thing. It's kicking ass. Let me go create 20 of these. And I'm going to create exact replicas of it because I know it's working. So I want to go make as much money as possible. And we took a different approach, which was our first location in Chicago. And obviously, our early investors were like, great, build 10 more in Chicago. It's a giant city. It's not like there's saturation. And instead, we built one in St. Louis, one in Raleigh, North Carolina, one in Atlanta, one in Philadelphia, and a couple other cities in order to purposefully test out different regions of the country to figure out if pricing would be different, if marketing was different, if the way you toured and the way that you closed customers was different, if nature of demand and the way people experienced the product was different. And we built out each unit with slightly different ratios of shared space to private space and different service models. You know, I look now and even until three or four years ago, there were a lot of providers that had 12, 13 units and they all stalled. They really had a lot of trouble moving beyond that. And as you know, we're now at a hundred essentially. And I think I credit part of that to the fact that we were willing to take the risk of treating the first few years as we want to make money, but we want to make money with an eye towards generating data and learnings so that we can really be the best in the business by three, four, or five years from now. Mm-hmm. And how do you track those metrics? How do you track the metrics of what's working, what's not working, 
And it sounds like that fits your analytic mind pretty well, but talk about that a little bit. So I would say there's kind of three types of metrics that a business like ours, really that any operating business is looking at. You're looking at financial metrics, quantitative operating metrics, and then subjective sort of qualitative customer satisfaction metrics. So financial Mm -hmm. metrics in our business, price times occupancy minus your OPEX gets you to your margin and really looking closely at small distinctions in, in margin over time based on different things. And then the IRR of the unit, how much did you spend to create it and what's the return on that capital? Then a whole host of operating metrics around customer churn, conversion rates of different points in the funnel. So two units could look identical. They're both 90% full. They both have 31% margin. But one unit, mm-hmm. every time a customer leaves, you have a 50% conversion rate on tour, meaning one in every two people who walks in the door to tour signs on the dotted line. And the other one, mm-hmm. one in eight does. That's an important operating metric to look at because on financial basis, it might look the same, but you know there's something very different going on. And then qualitative metrics around customer satisfaction, when people exit, series of exit surveys about the reasons people exit. And when you combine those, you very quickly, if you're smart about it, you don't need to be Amazon to start to generate very rich data that can help you improve your business pretty rapidly. Uh The last thing I would say is I think people, most businesses underestimate the value of the third category at the expense of the first and second. They focus a lot on their margins, a lot on their financial metrics Uh and a lot of their operating metrics, or there are companies that focus on what their valuation is and what investors are willing to pay them. And they don't even focus on any of the three things I just mentioned. But what a lot of companies fail to do is really dig in on the subjective customer satisfaction numbers. And that more than anything else is what you manage towards. And everything good that has happened for this business has flowed in a lot of ways from the obsession first and foremost with our NPS, our net promoter score, which is kind of the gold standard of customer satisfaction metric and a series of other customer satisfaction metrics. And I think people fall in love with their own stuff. I really do. Hey, we've designed this thing and it works. I think that's such a good point. I think a lot of people, it's not that they don't think they could collect a lot of rich data, they don't want to. Or what happens is they start and they cherry pick the data that bolsters their thesis for what's going to win in their industry or convinces them they're doing a good job. And then they say data is worthless. And the reason data is worthless was because they weren't willing to really look at it in a clear-eyed, brutally honest way. And then it is worthless. And it's not data, it's you. You know, it's the lens through which you're looking at it is oftentimes the thing that makes the underlying data worthless. It's interesting. One of my favorite podcasts was a guy named Keith Oden, who's a president and co-founder and partner, another business partner, business of Camden Property Trust, a multi-family REIT. Mm. And they've been in the 100 best places to work on the fortune list for 11, 12, 13 years. And what's interesting about it is the metrics that get you there come through every single year. So to maintain it, they do an entire data survey and you still have to win again. So every year you're winning again and again. And what it takes to win in year five is not what it took in year two or in year seven. So you're always having, he didn't go to this level of detail, but you're always having to adjust, change more and grow as those needs change. I think that's true of all businesses. I think people like to make fun of Silicon Valley startups that fall flat on their face. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's deserved. There's a lot of hubris. There's a lot of patting themselves on the back about their growth rates. But I think what oftentimes goes unspoken is all businesses, even Exxon or really stable businesses, they're a different business every three or four years. And what it takes to succeed and what it takes to make your employees engaged or make your customers want to keep coming back changes over time. It's an order of magnitude different when you're a business like Industrious that's growing at 120% a year. And, you know, we had our all company offsite a couple of weeks ago. And we do it every year. And 60-something percent of the people there weren't at the last one. Right. And that does put a lot of pressure on a business to be cognizant of always, always, always being aware of what you're doing, staying on top of what you're doing, and never coasting. Because half the people at your company don't even know what you were doing nine months ago anyway. So you have to be relentless about continually defining what you're about, what you're planning to do, and over-communicating that. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't think that's the case in the office building business until 
you all came along to change the fundamental nature of that business or force change in at least part of that business. What changed from year to year was what lobbies might look like. Right. But the rest of the experience in an office building is you go quickly through the lobby, you get upstairs, and then it's you're in your company. You have nothing to do with your landlord or your building. I have a secret test for how to know if landlords are thinking about that in the right way or not that I use in meetings sometimes. What's that now not so secret test? <laughs> I think mm-hmm. a lot of landlords tend to talk about their buildings on a features basis. It has a gym. It has a marble mm-hmm. lobby. It has this kind of elevator. And that's usually not a great sign. And those tend to be not the best partners for us. Whereas there's a new breed of landlords or, or an old breed of landlords that have gotten, I think, more thoughtful about the way they think about their buildings. And when you walk into a meeting at a Blackstone or Brookfield or the person on the other side of the table says something like, this is what I want it to feel like to work in this building. Or I want this to be the best building in Los Angeles or the best campus in Los Angeles at X. And they're really yeah. able to get in the, inside the mind of the tenant and say, what is the tenant actually experiencing at this building? Not a feature list, but an actual yeah. set of like day-to-day outcomes. Those landlords, yeah. I think, are starting to pull away from the rest of the path. Absolutely true. A person who introduced us was Lisa Picard, who also was on the yeah. podcast oh. and really defined that just in yeah. a very, very different way. She might be the most extreme example of that I've seen in real estate. So we're going to have to wrap up in a few minutes, but talk about the future of industrious and talk about the future of the co-working industry. And as we thought about it, we've talked about kind of you and we work at the beginning of this, but there's many players, there's many small players Where is this going? Where is it going for you and for the sector? So here's what I would say about the sector in general. Most outsourcing industries like ours exist as little niches for a very long time. And our industry was 1% of commercial real estate or less for a very long time, as long as the value proposition was Regis in the old days saying, we can do this more flexibly and more conveniently than you can. But they're not Mm -hmm. arguing they can do it better. And then most outsourcing industries, whether it's manufacturing or data storage or pharmaceutical research, whatever it is, there is a moment when the adoption curve really changes, meaning it goes Mm -hmm. for 25 years, it's 0.7% of the industry. And then in a 10-year period, it goes from 0.7% to 40%. And I think Mm -hmm. that's usually when a provider, a series of providers is able to say, it's not just that we can do this more flexibly than you can or cheaper, we can do this better than you can. There are now a series of providers, I would say industrious at the center of that trend, that are really out in the market saying, we can do this better than you can. And the market has gotten hold of it, and most large businesses have some experience. They put 100-person team in the industrious, 150-person team in WeWork, and a bunch of 40-person teams in you know industrious or other providers. And they've taken stock and they've come to the conclusion that they're getting as good, if not a better employee outcome than when they do it themselves. And behind closed doors, Mm -hmm. the vast majority of occupiers, I would say, are now ending the experimental phase and saying, what comes next? How do I really programmatically start to escalate the outsourcing of my sort of workplace portfolio? What I think that will look like is you'll continue to see 30% sector-level growth rate. This is independent of slowing down of WeWork's growth. I think for the really good providers, you'll see north of 100% growth rate, or let's say north of 70% growth rate. And over time, it will concentrate into an industry with three or four players that dominate globally. You know, outsource manufacturing, four companies have 95% mm-hmm. of the global revenue. Outsource real estate, CBRE, Cushman, and JLL, or the kind of big four have 90-something percent of revenue. These industries tend to follow that trajectory. It might take a decade, but I think that's where we're going to get. Right now, there's 140 providers in New York. All of the subscale providers are struggling. There's a wave of consolidation coming, and there will eventually be three or four. And when there's three or four, they're really good. Are they still special? I think that at that point, they are very large business services firms. What you experience on the ground in San Francisco at an individual unit, it will not be a single product that exists across the world. There'll be a company called Industrious Workplace Services, and they do outsource headquarters management, and we have a premium product and a mid-price product, and 
there'll be a wide diversity of actual, you know, Amazon Web Services, for example, is 72 different products. And each of those mm-hmm. products could be special for that reason. And I think the biggest thing of all, if you think about as a listener, as someone who either works in the real estate industry or works in an office and has some stake in this, the biggest mm-hmm. thing that will change over time is probably not the behind the scenes business consolidation, which is really more of a corporate strategy and business question than a product question. The biggest product change, I think, will be you're going to move from operators taking over two or three floors of a building and turning it into a flexible workplace sort of setting for a subset of the building to working arm in arm with landlords to manage whole buildings. You know, we now, we manage a campus of buildings with Blackstone in LA that Lisa might have talked about when she was on that we have been blown away by how big the impact on tenant experience has been on the performance of the building. And I think that's going to be the future that by three, four years from now, it's going to be more workplace operators hand in hand with landlords, optimizing entire assets and working across the long-term and more flexible stack of the building. And that's going to be great for the average person who walks into work every day at that building. There's just going to be more experiences more types of work they can do, more services than you could ever get in the more 20th century version of what a building is. So if you look at the building holistically, there's now the opportunity for people to be in and out on flexible leases like what's driving me and might drive the remote office for Johnson & Johnson. But also in that building will be the headquarters of Johnson & Johnson. And your type of service an understanding of the drivers of the workforce could be the backbone of both of those. I think that's exactly right. I think even if you have 400 employees, at some point, there are things we can offer at the building level that most companies couldn't offer just to their own employees. And what we see is people are trying so hard to deliver more learning and development to their employees, deliver better events to their employees. And if the building can be your partner in delivering that, I think that's really special. Like I would finish with an anecdote on that front that also ties to this question of selling features versus benefits. At that complex I was talking about in LA, there's a really nice fitness facility, indoor, outdoor, great classes. And I think on the tours, people sort of said, hey, look how nice the gym is. And it kind of worked. And I remember sort of hearing about a tour where the way that it was positioned was, think about your team. There are times when your sales team is not getting along and they seem uninspired and think about how cool it would be to be able to have a weekly Peloton race between the marketing team and the sales team. And you track it and you use it to build employee engagement and employee connection. And when you are able to describe a feature of the building as something essential to the underlying employees work experience, that was transformational compared to look how nice the gym is. And I think that's a preview of a lot of the way that buildings and their occupiers are going to interact in the future. Hmm. It makes total sense and listeners beware. It's interesting. I'm a real estate guy and do a real estate podcast and I run a real estate recruiting firm. And when I think of the real estate business, I think of it building by building creates a portfolio. And Mm -hmm. your view and your disruption comes from the top of that, not building by building at all, which is platform can infiltrate all of the above. The model's upside down that way. And I think it will create a lot of value for asset owners. Because if you think about instead of just charging for space, you're now delivering space, design, construction, hostility events, everything I just said, all of the components that go into, and for a company like McKinsey or Google, their average cost per workstation per year for employees, Mm -hmm. $16,000, $18,000 a year. Landlords are going to get to participate in that income stream. I think it's a little scarier for the real estate services firm. I don't think the Blackstones of the world should be worried at all. I think this is the best development that could have happened for them. Yep. So we should wrap up. Last question I always ask someone is if they had a couple minutes to talk to a young person beginning their career, probably their career in real estate, What would your advice be? I think that the way that you talk about customers, partners, et cetera, behind closed doors determines everything. Young people in their career, sometimes Mm -hmm. they kind of watch movies about Wall Street or this or that. And there's this kind of like 
you can be schmoozy and handshake in person and then behind closed doors, like, ah, customer's an idiot or that landlord doesn't know anything. And I've seen it in our industry, people who really think landlords are sleepy, kind of right. can't keep up with stuff. And, and that bleeds into everything. And I think if you treat your partners and your clients and your customers with respect, not just when you're face to face with them, but always, I think that as someone starting your career, it's such an important part of being great at your job and building a great reputation. And I think the second I would say is, and it's sort of a corollary of that is, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. You know, I remember talking to a competitor that I think is going to exit the space soon. But I remember they said, oh, this portion of our business, we don't really care about it. Like we just do it because it looks good for the market hmm. and it, it's a lead gen for the other. And that concept that you can be terrible at something or deliver a bad experience to customers at that because it benefits some other things, that's a bad idea for a business. It's a bad idea for a professional or for an individual the way you approach any element of who you are at work and of your career is going to eventually mm-hmm. be everything will sort of fall to the lowest level of professionalism you behave with or thoughtfulness you behave with. So that's the bar. I love that. It's interesting. In the search business, we care about our clients, right? So our clients drive the business. They pay us. It's a company looking to hire a person. And one of our mantras is we treat our candidates like gold. And some people have criticized me for bragging to my clients that my candidates might come first or equal to the clients. But it proves your point, right? The way you treat everybody, the way you walk through the world, is going to permeate your business top to bottom. It absolutely matters. Really helpful advice. Thank you. Hey, uh, Jamie, thank you. This has been a delightful conversation. I hope either in New York or... When you come through California, San Francisco, we'll get to do this in person. I'd love that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This is great. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening in on the conversation with Jamie Hodari. If you've enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend, rate us on iTunes, and feel free to email me with feedback at matt at terrasearchpartners.com.